0: You know, if the last three years have confirmed anything, if the last three years have confirmed any of our biblical doctrines as true, it is the doctrine of total depravity, isn't it? I mean, the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of human beings, that's always been true ever since the fall, of course, but given the incessant plotting of terrorists, The conspiring of nations, the posturing for power on the part of world leaders on the national and international scene, one could argue that it has never been more conspicuous than it is at this moment that rebellion, defiance, and the fanatical pursuit of radical self-sovereignty is more prevalent on the planet than ever. I mean, if you think about it, we're in the book of Judges, state of emergency, but on a global scale. The nations and the kings who rule them always, always do what is right in their own eyes without regard for God. This is the Tower of Babel all over again, only on a global scale, 10,000 times worse than the first time. Think about it. Has there been one week... Can you find one week on the calendar in the last three years where there wasn't some global scandal or outrage taking place? We are literally witnessing the human race plunging themselves headlong into a ravenous frenzy of self-destruction, aren't we? we are watching before our very eyes the very shifting of entire civilizations. And what that does is create a sense of insecurity, doesn't it? Of instability, vulnerability, unpredictability. And what this does, of course, raise a very important question. The question is, is there anyone in the universe, ultimately and actually in charge? Is there anyone out there in absolute control over this global mosh pit for world domination? Or is all of human history just one giant exercise in violence and chaos and pandemonium? And I know you know the answer, but you see that is an answer question to which Psalm 2 provides an answer and by that I mean the answer, I mean the only answer to the question as to who has the ultimate power in the universe. And according to Psalm 2, who has ultimate power over sin, over sinners, over evil, over the wicked nations on the brink of war? Who has that power is none other than Yahweh himself and his messianic king. That's who reigns, that's who rules. That is who guides and governs everything that comes to pass. See, the psalm that you're about to witness here offers a perspective on history and a window into reality that although rejected and mocked by the world is nevertheless true, and it is what we need us to sustain us in a world gone insane. And yet, what you have to understand is that the psalm that we're about to see doesn't merely assert that God is sovereign, although it does that, of course. But what it also does is poetically portray the end of the world and the beginning of a new one. In other words, this psalm, Psalm 2, is nothing less, get this, than a poem of prophecy, it's a hymn of eschatology. It's a 12-verse portrayal of the final chapters of Revelation when Yahweh's king shows up to the planet, shatters the nations, builds his kingdom, and rules the world from a throne in Jerusalem. That is the end of the world. That is where history is going. And that's where we're going this morning. We're talking about what this weekend? We're talking about the fear of God, aren't we? What it means why it matters, how it's produced in the soul, and that it's not merely one possible good alternative of how to respond rightly to God, but that it is all of the responses to God, the appropriate responses to God summarized and woven together. Fearing God is at the center of what authentic faith in God really is. It's not faith unless you fear Him. You see, the burden that I have this weekend is that we understand together the beautiful complexity of all that it means to fear God. And the reason why Psalm 2 is part of the lineup this weekend is because contained in this psalm, listen to this, contained in this psalm is one of the most piercing and penetrating and clarifying insights in the Bible as to what the fear of God even means. It's in the psalm. All of our emotional objections and reactions against the fear of God are both silenced and answered by Psalm 2, verse 11, when it commands human beings to serve Yahweh with fear and to rejoice with trembling. Do you hear the juxtaposition of those things? Serve, fear, rejoice, and tremble. You know what that is? That's, that's a theology of fearing God in one verse. It's all there. In fact, that's a definition of what it means to be a believer. That defines and describes what a relationship with God even looks like. And that's contained And what I'm arguing is a prophetic poem that displays the arrival of the king to come back and take back the planet that's rightfully his and make all things be the way they ought to be. So to prepare you for what you're about to see, let me ask you some questions, beloved. What troubles you this weekend? What ails you this weekend? What haunts you this weekend? What, what preoccupies you in those secret moments? Because it goes without saying, doesn't it, that the last three years alone have furnished plenty of material that is disturbing and troubling and unsettling and and terrifying and yet, and yet, when we rightly consider who God is and what He has planned for the end of the age, all of a sudden we find that the fears which were previously so crippling to us fade into oblivion. That all the courage to face the unknown and the greatest terrors of a fallen world come not from an inner spring of moral resolve, but from a clear perception of true reality, namely that Jesus Christ will return and make things right in the world. And with raw, delicious power, that's exactly what Psalm 2 portrays and displays. Look together with me at Psalm 2. I will read the text, verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage? And why are the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth shall take their stand, and the rulers shall conspire together against Yahweh and against His Messiah. Let us break apart their bonds, and let us cast away their cords from us, Ah, but the one who is sitting in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall scoff at them. Then he shall speak to them in his anger. And he shall terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then you notice the speaker changes in verse 7. To the Messiah, the Anointed One, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask from me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. And now, O kings, be wise. Take warning, judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Literally, kiss the sun. Lest he become angry angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath shall soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. I want you to see from this text, four acts. Four acts in the drama of history that fill us with courage as we wait for the kingdom to come. Four acts in the drama of history, the drama of redemption that fill us with courage as we wait for the kingdom to come. And we begin with act one. Act one, which I'm calling the ludicrous attempt at autonomy. The ludicrous attempt at autonomy. The psalm begins with a bang in verse one, or should I say it begins with rebellion. Look at the text. The poet opens with a question. Why? Why do the nations rage? And why are the peoples plotting in vain? What is the writer describing? To to what does he refer? Because this sounds bad. This sounds like a bad thing. And it is a bad thing. But he gets more specific in verse 2. Notice, the kings of the earth shall take their stand. And the rulers shall conspire together against Yahweh and against His Messiah. So, first the nations, now the kings. The ringleaders of whatever it is they're planning to do. And then it becomes clear in verse 3 as we hear out loud what it is they say in their secret meetings. And what do they say in their secret meetings? What do they want to accomplish? Verse 3, let us break apart their bonds. Let us cast away their cords from us. And there it is, the scene is now set and what we have in our hands is a good old fashioned mutiny, isn't it? And yet yeah, you can already tell in verse 1 that this is not a mere local or, or regional concern, but rather the, the inspired poet as he looks out on humanity, he sees something global and worldwide and international. Notice in verse 1 the parallels. There are nations, plural. There are peoples, plural. This is massive. This is global. This is scary. But notice what the peoples and nations of the planet do. He says the nations rage. The peoples are plotting, he says. You can see that the nations are angry. As the writer looks on the global scene of humanity, he can clearly see that the nations and the peoples are driven and consumed by rage. What are they angry about? That word rage describes commotion and chaos and confusion. It's almost on the brink of madness, and yet at the same time, it's also premeditated. There's a method to the madness. There's, it's organized confusion. It's all planned and intentional because notice the end of verse 1. It says that the people's plot, the people's plot, guess what? That's literally the word for meditate. The picture is the angry whispers of a collusion. This is a coup d'etat. This is a, a conspiring and a, cons- and a conniving together and a furious revolt and, and global revolution. And, and here we are, one verse in and already. This sounds hauntingly familiar, doesn't it? This is our world. This is the world that we live in. We see this every single day of our lives, do we not? This is not a safe world. This is not a peaceful world. And that has profound power and potential to grip our hearts and cripple us with fear, doesn't it? And yet you heard, I hope, you heard, I hope, two small details in the text that turns the nation's rage and turns the people's plotting on its head. Notice that the writer says that the people's plot, how? The people's plot in what way? How does he describe it? The people's plot in vain. This is vain. What does that mean? That means this is doomed. This is never going to work out. At the outset, he wants us to know this is not going to turn out well for them. These plans are silly. These are stupid. This is insane. This is is suicide. And the reason why it's suicide is because their outcome is inevitable. As we're about to see later in the psalm, the most violent expressions of mutiny by the godless nations will result in nothing except to be the means of their own destruction. Which is why he puts verse 1 in the form of a question. Why? Why are the nations doing this? Why do they rage? Why do they plot in vain? It's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for information. He's throwing up his hands, shaking his head. He's incredulous. He's astonished. This is insane. This is irrational. This is ludicrous. What? What is ludicrous? Look what he says in verse 2. He specifies. The kings of the earth shall take their stand. And the rulers shall conspire together against Yahweh and against His Messiah. Oh, I get it now. Now it makes sense. The reason for the rage and the point of the plan was opposition against Yahweh and His Anointed One. I get it. His Anointed One, literally, Mashiach. Messiah. You see, this isn't just a global rebellion we're talking about. This is the ultimate rebellion. This is all the nations and all the peoples and all the kings and all their rulers who lead them going all the way up in their opposition against the very one who sovereignly rules it all, namely Yahweh and his Messiah. And again, notice the parallels. Hebrew poetry, it's, it doesn't use rhyming and timing, it uses parallelism notice in the text there are the kings of the earth and there are rulers and what do they do they take their stand and they conspire the nations and peoples of verse 1 are led represented by their kings and rulers And when it says the kings shall take their stand, guess what? That's a military term. This is hostile. This is battle. This is war. This is literal war against the highest level of leadership in the entire universe. Because notice, notice the kings and rulers, they will war and conspire against Yahweh and against his Messiah, the, the dual object of their rage. And what is it exactly that they desire? What do they want? What do they say in their board meetings? Look at verse 3. The rallying cry that binds them together in a unity of a mutiny. They say, let us break apart their bonds. Let us cast away their cords from us. That's our declaration of independence, isn't it? A repudiation of divine authority. They feel enslaved and constrained and shackled and chained, not by literal chains, of course, but by what God has spoken and revealed in His holy word. What he declares in the Holy Scriptures, it chafes them, it condemns them, it exposes them. The truth is the nails on the chalkboard of their consciences, and therefore their violent is both their their response is both violent and unanimous. They they rally one another up in a, a frenzy of insurrection. Let us break apart their bonds, let us cast away their cords. You can hear echoes of Babel there. And what this is, you understand, this is nothing less, nothing less than the untamable impulse to be free. To do what they want. To do what they please. To, to free, the, to rule themselves as their own authorities. This is, you understand, the universal idolatry of autonomy. That deep-seated lust for self-sovereignty. And yet again, freedom from whom? Uh, Autonomy from whom exactly? Yahweh and His anointed. And we know who Yahweh is, don't we? This is the infinite, eternal, uncaused uncreated, unchangeable, sovereign God of absolute, undisputed dominion. And the nations and kings hate him, and they will take their stand against him. But at the exact same time, their mutinous war is also simultaneously against his Messiah, against his anointed one. Mashiach, where we get our word Messiah. And yet, who exactly are we talking about here? Who exactly is the anointed one? And you read the psalm and it becomes perfectly clear. You see in verse 6, he is the king. Sent by Yahweh to reign from a throne in Zion, that is Jerusalem. Verse 7, the Messiah is the son of Yahweh himself. It's a title of royalty and also a hint of the trinity. In verse 8, the Messiah, when He arrives, He will rule and own the ends of the earth. Those things rightly belong to Him. Texas is His. Canada is His. California is His. China is His. verse 9, He will break the back of wicked nations, shatter the rebels of the earth. Finally, verse 12, who is this king? He is the one who deserves all allegiance and anyone who does not give it to him and yield to him in broken-hearted repentance and faith will be consumed in the flames of his wrath and the fires of his judgment. That's who the Messiah is. That's who the anointed one is, which means the only one this could possibly be describing is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here he is in the text. Portrayed as conquering the nations and ruling the world centuries before he even showed up to the planet. In fact, I am persuaded. I am persuaded on exegetical and theological grounds that the insurrection in verses 1 through 3 does not necessarily or only describe generally how people respond and react against God. Rather, I believe this to be prophetic of a particular rebellion coming in human history. I believe verses 1 through 3 is prophetic. It is eschatological What I mean is I am persuaded that this here, what we're seeing is the confederation of godless kings described in Revelation 17 and 19 who under the reign of the Antichrist will unite together and take their stand against Jesus Christ. And you know how that's going to go. So the psalm is not just poetic, it is prophetic. It's prophetic of the war waged at the end of the age of which Jesus Christ will mer- emerge as the overwhelming victor, which brings us now to Act 2. Act 2. The confident response of sovereignty. The confident response of sovereignty. Because what about God? How will God respond to the greatest mutiny and insurrection and sedition in history, how, how will he respond? Will he nervously bite his nails? Is he going to lose sleep over this? Ring his hands together, down another scotch, run to the toilet, cross his fingers and hope for the best? None of that, none of that, and yet his response in verses 4 and 5 is nevertheless surprising. Look at the text. The one who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord will scoff at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger. And He will terrify them in His fury. Saying what? Saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. My holy mountain. Notice there in verse four the jolting contrast between the Lord and the nations in rebellion. They are on the earth in a fit of rage, a temper tantrum of rage, a a tantrum of depravity. The Lord is in heaven, and what does He do? He laughs. He laughs. He sits in the heavens and he, and he will laugh at them deeply, heartily, boisterously, side-splittingly. And the reason He does is precisely because He sits in the heavens, which doesn't describe His distance from us so much as it describes His supremacy over us. This is His transcendence. His holiness. He is lofty and exalted and matchless and supreme. And the title in the Hebrew, Lord, Adonai, that's parallel. The one who sits in the heavens is Adonai. It is the Lord. And even that term, even that title is profoundly theological. It's a title of dominion and sovereignty, of Metros' power and authority. This is the one who reigns and rules and who guides and governs everything that comes to pass. He is sovereign. And he laughs. You understand, this is the laugh of irony. This is the sound of sovereignty. Sovereignty. The the laughter exposes the futility of their mutiny, does it not? His sovereignty is so infinitely lopsided over them, it provides a, a comedic quality to the situation. This is comedy relief, diabolical though it is. And yet his laughter has a bit of a bite to it, doesn't it? Because although Yahweh laughs, he laughs in a darkly comic sort of way. Because verse 4 says, notice, that the Lord will scoff at them. He will scoff at them. The Antichrist and his kings, he will mock them. This is a scoffing laughter, sneering, sarcastic, holy mockery. It's hilarious only because it's so ridiculous. Wait, are you serious? You're kidding, right? You're going to go to war against me and my Messiah? Oh, that is rich. Oh, that is, that is comedic gold. This is hilarious. Thank you. Thank you. I needed that. And that's precisely what the sovereignty of God does, doesn't it? It puts all sin and evil in the world into its proper perspective, doesn't it? Because they say, don't they, they say that that laughter is the best medicine, but I suggest to you that Yahweh's laughter is the best medicine for the soul because it reminds us that all the earth-shaking forces unleashed into the world are unleashed by Him. He is in the control room of the universe, not them. He is the only ultimate cause, not them, not the evil one. All the sins of man and all the schemes of Satan must serve ultimately to advance the kingdom and glory of his Son. Because he laughs the laugh of sovereignty, we can laugh the laugh of faith knowing that nothing happens in the world except what he has decreed. Do you believe that? That there are no accidents in the world? There's no such thing as karma. There's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as coincidence. All there is to make sense out of reality is sovereignty. That doesn't take away from anyone's responsibility. It doesn't take away from the urgency to evangelize or to preach the gospel or to pray or any of that. We're just saying that's the way it is. And yet, funny though, this isn't a Gulliver Travels sort of way. All of a sudden, the countenance of Yahweh begins to change. He begins to grow stern and severe. The smile now fades and gives way to a fierce and holy rage. Look at verse 5. Then, then, he shall speak to them in his anger. He shall terrify them in his Wrath. Did you notice the increase of intensity? Speak in anger. Terrify in fury. That word fury literally means heat. That's the Hebrew word for heat. Heat. It melts and incinerates its victims. The white Hot, atomic rage of the Almighty, however, will not fall on deaf ears, but instead it will bring the rebel powers of the world to their knees, to their knees, trembling and defenseless and helpless and paralyzed, which of course raises the question, doesn't it? What is so scary? What is so scary? Well, what, what could the sovereign one possibly say that would evoke such a response in a global confederation of wicked kings with state-of-the-art weapons and surface-to-air missiles and enough nuclear firepower to take out multiple planets, not just our own? And the answer is, they might have guns. Yahweh has a king. He is the source of terror. He is the reason for the fear. He will be the worst nightmare come true for these rulers and kings. Look at verse 6. Here is the scary speech of Yahweh. He will speak to them in His anger. He will terrify them in His fury. Here it is. I will, but I will install my king upon Zion. My holy mountain. And I know that doesn't sound scary. Trust trust me, nothing could be scarier because the king, you understand, he is the instrument of Yahweh's wrath. He is the instrument of Yahweh's justice sent to beat the world like a pinata with the bat of his wrath. Notice there in verse 6, three crucial features that we have got to understand. Three features in verse 6 we've got to understand. Number one, there is the action of Yahweh. The action of Yahweh, he says, I have installed my king. Here's what's really funny about that is the Hebrew doesn't mean that at all. Installed? It's not what it says. That word is literally the Hebrew word to pour out. To pour out. That's the same word used in the ancient world to describe the pouring of molten metal in a mold to make an image of a deity. The point is, this king will be the very image of God. He is and will be the physical representation, the physical appearance, the physical presence of Yahweh on this very planet. In other words, what this is, is the very incarnation itself. And this is exactly where Paul got his language in Colossians 1.15 when he says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. The God who is invisible became visible when he came to earth as a man. And then notice number two, the agent of Yahweh. There's the action of Yahweh, now here's the agent of Yahweh. You see, in his wrath and terror, God will pour out his own image, as it were, send his representative to the earth, and does and what does Yahweh call him but a king? He calls him a king, a king who will rule on earth just as Yahweh rules in heaven. A king sent by God to the earth to depict him, to represent him, to bring back the planet that rightfully belongs to him. And I just want you to know there are so many theological connections converging here at this moment. This is a theological grand central station. Because you understand, don't you, that the mention of a king points backwards and forwards and all around itself all at the same time. Doesn't it? I mean, to be honest, the mention of a king actually does point all the way back to Adam, who was appointed to be the first king on the planet. Did you know that? He was called to rule and subjugate the earth. But he blew it with a sin and he squandered the kingdom. King refers back to Genesis 49 verse 10, doesn't it? And the king who would be a lion, the king who would come from the tribe of Judah. And it says that all the peoples of the earth would obey him. The mention of king points back to 2 Samuel 7. And the covenant with David which predicts a king to arise from the line of David who establish an eternal kingdom on this planet and rule forever. And this mention of king points all around itself to the prophets, doesn't it? who also speak of the great Davidic king to come and make things right in the world. And of course, this mention of a king points forward, forward to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the descendant of David, who confirmed in every way possible that he is, in fact, the king from David's line. Here he is. The one, the entire, the one that, about whom, to whom, the entire Old Testament was pointing, and here he is in Psalm two, sent by Yahweh to restore what Adam lost, and that's exactly what, you, what he's going to do. You understand that, right? You understand that that Jesus Christ is a whole Savior, a comprehensive Savior. He is a cosmic savior and king who will bring back the planet to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions. You knew that, right? But notice, notice feature number three. There's the action of Yahweh. There's the agent of Yahweh. But then number three, there's the area from which the king will reign. The area. Notice, notice Yahweh says, I will install my king. Where? On Zion, my holy mountain. Do you know what Zion is? Do you know where Zion is? That's Jerusalem as in literal Jerusalem, on this planet, not in its current condition, of course. But it will be the capital of the kingdom. It will be the centerpiece of the earth. It will be the gravitational center of the Messiah's reign when he comes to earth, when he arrives, and from which he will rule and subjugate the nations. And so what that means is that the fulfillment of this psalm, listen carefully, the fulfillment of this psalm is not some ethereal, intangible, heavenly reality out there somewhere the fulfillment of this will be on the very planet that you are sitting right in this moment. Because you understand, paradise was lost on the earth. Paradise will be regained on the earth. And I'm wondering if you're okay with that. I'm wondering if you're okay with that. What I mean is, most people's conception of the age to come consists in some vague notion of heaven where we're still trying to shake the lame medieval idea where we play togas, play togas, sit in togas. Wait, did I say this right? What, am I, what, what words are coming out of my mouth right now? I'm speaking Chinese. All right, we wear togas. We play harps. We sit on clouds. You know that lame medieval image? Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. What I'm saying is you need to make room in your theology for geography. You need to make room in your theology for geography. What I mean is, geography is simply theology made visible. What I'm saying is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and of his covenants demands their tangible, physical, public, literal fulfillment on the earth, on a literal kingdom ruled by the Messiah. And do you feel the hope that's intended by this? I mean, did you see that, that the solution for sin and the, and the greatest terrors of a fallen world are found in this King who will reign upon the earth? We will watch with our very own eyes Jesus Christ single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. We sang last night, God will burn the chariots. What is that, symbolic? No. He will burn the tanks. And we're going to watch Him do it. And you understand. You understand what this does, do you not? This frees us. This frees us to live our lives in reckless abandonment to Jesus Christ, knowing that no matter what it is that happens to us, Yahweh and His King will make it right. What's holding you back? What's keeping you from radical, reckless abandonment to Jesus Christ? What is it that you are fighting so hard to preserve and that you are so afraid to lose? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, namely the kingdom. Which brings us to Act 3, Act 3, the guaranteed assurance of victory. The guaranteed assurance of victory, and here all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Messiah speaks. He was spoken about by the kings and rulers in verse 3. He was spoken about by Yahweh himself in verse 6, but here in verses 7-9, through he, he speaks for himself. And what He reveals, get this, you're not going to believe it, what He reveals is a private conversation between the Father and the Son before the galaxies were made. Look at the text starting in verse 7. The king says, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask from me and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. You can see, can't you, the speech of the king it is almost an entirely a quotation of what Yahweh said. Get this in eternity past. This is a quotation of what Yahweh said in eternity past. This is inner Trinitarian dialogue reported and recorded for us to hear. And what this is, is the ancient king side of the story. In other words, Jesus Christ is speaking in the psalm, giving the ancient biblical theological context for everything that Yahweh just said. And look what he says in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. Let me tell you a little story, he says, about the decree of Yahweh. Let me tell you about this. You know what that is? You know what the decree is he's talking about? You're never going to believe it. It's the blueprints for human history. That's what it is. That's what he's talking about. This is the ancient plan. Before time began, get this, to create a world in which would be sin and evil and sinners who need a Savior. It has to be. It just has to be what he's talking about. In fact, I am persuaded that verse 7 is the one verse version of John 17 in which Christ reveals that all of history is nothing less than the drama of redemption unfolding in the world. This is a conversation between the father and the son before time began. Because even then, even then, the father decreed, did he not? Even then, the father decreed that his son would come to earth, that there would be an earth, that he would become a man, that there would be a thing called man, and that from the inside out, he would save the yet-to-be-created human race and restore the yet-to-be-lost kingdom by Adam, who wasn't even in existence yet. I mean, it's enough to stagger you. My my point is, all of that is what the king means by the decree of Yahweh. It is the plot of salvation planned and predestined before the universe was made. And if that seems hard to believe, look what he says next. I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. Here it is. What is the decree? Here it is. It's summarized. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Meaning what? Meaning royal adoption. Do you understand? This is royal adoption language. You see, in Old Testament theology, kings were, in a sense, adopted by Yahweh. Did you know that? To be the king was to be the son of God. The adopted son of God who would be the rightful heir of everything Yahweh promised to give him. As the son of God, the king was the image of God. He was the representative of God. He, he was the mouthpiece of God. He was the mediator to God. And he wielded, in a sense, the limited authority of God on the earth. His authority was limited, not God's. And that's exactly what this is. And so listen carefully. As eternal God, this is crucially, crucial for us to get this theologically, as eternal God, Christ was already the divine Son of God forever. But when he became a man, he also became the royal adopted Son of God who would reign as king and be the rightful heir of everything Adam would lose. That's the plan. And what would he inherit that Adam would lose? Verse 8, still quoting the Father before creation, this is the promised inheritance, ask from me, ask from me and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. What a stunning transaction. Can you you see what's happening here? Before the universe was made, God the Father offered His Son a gift. Isn't that interesting? That human history that the planet and the universe exists as the result of a Trinitarian gift exchange between the Father and the Son before time began. Who knew? The Father offered a Son a gift, and the gift was nothing less than the yet to be created nations. And the yet-to-be-formed ends of the earth as his inheritance, as his possession. And what this is, is the very kingdom that would be lost by Adam. The sun would arrive to the planet, take the form of a man, and retrieve that rebel kingdom and bring paradise back to earth. You understand, this is where history is headed, don't you? This is the plan. This is always the plan. Namely, a sovereign global kingdom of the Messiah over the nations of the earth. And yet, you know what they say, don't you? They say that you should never bring a knife to a gunfight. And yet... It doesn't matter what you bring to the fight against the great high king, because no matter what you bring, you're going to lose, and you're going to lose everything. Because when the royal son comes to claim his throne, he's coming for combat. He's coming for conflict. He's coming for battle. He's coming for war. He's coming with weapons in His hand and He will shatter the nations and bring them into subjection. Look at verse 9, still quoting the Father. I will give you the nations. All the ends of the earth will belong to you. Here it is. You will break them. You will shatter them like earthenware. Notice again the parallels. I love Hebrew poetry, broken on the one hand, shattered on the other like fragile glass, and yet you notice that the instrument, notice the instrument that the king will use to break the nations, it's a scepter made of iron, a scepter made of iron. Normally that's just an image of royalty, right? But here it is transformed, isn't it, into a weapon, a battle mace. All who defy the king will be shattered in the day of his wrath. This is not going to end well for them. This is what one writer called irreversible devastation. And he will break them with a single blow. You understand verses 8 and 9 is why he asks in verse 1, why? Why Why are you doing this? Why are you planning this? Why, oh nations? Why, oh kings? Why, Xi Jinping, are you doing this? Why, Vladimir Putin, are you doing this? Why, oh American government political leaders, do you want more and more power for yourselves? Can't you see everything you lie and steal and kill to obtain will be taken from you in the day of the king? The nations are His. The world is His. The kingdom is His. And all those in rebellion, when He arrives, He will break and shatter with violent force, and no one will weep for them. I think it's very interesting, though not surprising at all, that Revelation 19 quotes this very verse. Verse 9 is in Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not, not a surprise at all, which puts Psalm 2 in an eschatological context. You'll understand this is prophecy, a poem of eschatology. And so you see what this does, don't you? What eschatology does for our lives for our very souls. You see what it does, do you not? It, you, you see the stability and the security that this text brings to the soul in a world of chaos and fear, don't you? You understand eschatology and previews of the kingdom are never, ever given in the text merely to tickle our intellectual fancy, but rather they are given by God in the text as a means of survival. That's why eschatology is in the Bible, a means of survival. You see, to be sane and not lose our minds in a world of chaos and fear, we have to have what I call kingdom reflexivity. Kingdom reflexivity. What does that mean? What I mean is, every time we have to develop a theological reflex in our souls that every time we hear something sad or scary or crazy or ugly in the world, which is all the time, we must... Reflex and react and remember the kingdom when things will no longer be that way ever again. That's what we must do. We must transpose the terrors of today with the triumphs of tomorrow. We must juxtapose the horrors of today with the happiness of the future. We have got to turn off the news. It really doesn't help you to be that informed. We have to turn off the blog, shut down the TV, turn it off, and open the sacred text and read eschatology. What we need is not more news, we need more good news of eschatology. When the planet will be reclaimed, which moves us finally to Acts 4, Act 4. Act 4, the urgent summons to loyalty. The urgent summons to loyalty. Because just when you think you have God figured out, He proves that He is beyond figuring. Not that he changes, but that there is actually more contained in his decree than just the shattering of rebellious nations, because in a clever plot twist, Act 4 surprises us with nothing less than a shocking offer of grace and a call to repentance. It turns out it's not too late to repent. Soon it will be, but not yet. Not yet. For 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 a surprise ending. Even though Yahweh laughs at his foes and scoffs at his enemies, his arms are still held wide as he offers the possibility of escape. And all of a sudden, the scene fades to back black. The a single spotlight shines on the stage, and out from behind the curtain, the sacred poet of the psalm itself reveals himself and what he gives is not mere disinterested commentary but even a summons and should i say a gospel summons he begins in verse 10 and now o kings be warned take take counsel o judges of the earth Notice, notice the parallels. Kings, be wise. Judges, be warned. Think it through. Think long and hard what you are planning on doing. Take a long walk by yourself and consider, consider, is this really going to be worth it in the end? Short-term gain for long-term destruction. This is never going to work out for you. Time is running out for you. And, and although, although you are not a world ruler, you or someone you love might be in the same predicament. Maybe you or someone you love is also on the suicidal path of self-sovereignty and autonomy. You should show them the psalm. If this is you, you should read the psalm again and consider this is not fiction. This is real And all unbelievers and these kings in the tribulation, when they come, they will have two ways that they can go. They can rage and wage a war against Yahweh, or they can do the opposite and obey the summons of verse 11. And here we go. Verse 11, look what it says. Serve Yahweh with fear. And rejoice with trembling. And there it is, not the only reason. But the reason why I'm preaching Psalm 2 at this conference to get to this verse right here, because you understand what this is, is an entire theology of fearing God in one verse. It perfectly captures all the beautiful and seemingly irreconcilable tensions of what fearing God even means. Again, you can see the parallels. There is serve and rejoice. Those are a pair. Fear and trembling. Those are a pair and you put it together, and what you have in verse 11 is the most complete and robust definition of fearing God in the entire Bible. In fact, I'll go further. Verse 11 defines and describes what a relationship with God even looks like. We're so obsessed. with This is not a religion. This is a relationship with God. Fine, fine. As long as you define it like this. Serve Him with fear, rejoice with trembling. Fear and trembling, service and joy. What is this? What is this? Put it all together. What you have is an unrestrained allegiance that trembles before God as the treasure of the soul. Is that, is that an okay paraphrase of verse 11? Unrestrained allegiance to God. As the treasure of the soul that trembles before God as the treasure of the soul. That's a definition of faith. That's what it means to believe. And and faith is defined as fear, service, joy, and trembling. Incredible. It is service, but not dry, obligatory service. It's a service with fear. And by now we know, don't we, fear is the multifaceted, all-encompassing word to describe how we rightly should respond to God and who He is in all of His uncreated majesty and towering supremacy. What is fear? What is that? But the raw, delicious, terror we taste in our soul when we begin to understand the sheer magnitude of the God who never had a beginning. What is fear but to tremble before God as the treasure of the soul? Which is exactly what the second half of verse 11 says. Serve Yahweh with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling, joy and terror, exhilaration and trepidation, delight and dread all at the same time. Where, I ask, are the gospel presentations that use this as the summons? How many mushy, Cordial, accommodating, pandering, user-friendly sermons must pastors preach to try to make God likable before they grow a backbone and call sinners to serve with fear and rejoice with trembling. One writer called this, the staggering paradox of fear. Filled jubilation. That's exactly what this is. That's what it means to be a believer. And what I love about verse 11 is that it does so many things all at the same time. It does so many things all at the same time. It it, it brings so much clarity to our lives, doesn't it? Verse 11 explains and exposes the ultimate root of our sin, doesn't it? If you think about it, it totally does. All sin, unrepentant and unkilled in our lives is the result of the fact that we have forgotten that in even our most secret moments, God is there in the totality of his being. And yet verse 11 also describes the the direction of our lives, the mission of our lives, doesn't it? This gives us the mission of our lives. And the mission of our lives is not first evangelism, nor is it ministry, nor is it providing for our families. Rather, your first and most important mission of your lives, in fact, the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to get your soul staggered by the supremacy of God from the pages of Scripture. That's the most loving thing you could do for another human being. You do that, you will make your church different. You do that, you will reach lost people. You do that, you will love spouses and shepherd your children. Not perfectly, not the way you need to right away, but you will do that. You understand, don't you? The secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. Because if if fearing God is the goal of our lives, and it is, if the meaning of our lives is to rejoice and tremble in God, and it is, then we must remember that the fear of God is cultivated by the majesty of God seen and savored in the Word of God. And yet, and yet, we haven't forgotten about the Son have we? We haven't forgotten about the psalm, the centerpiece of the psalm. I'm almost done here. The centerpiece of the psalm, the centerpiece of all history. And yet what these kings and these rebels throughout history, they have to understand is that all authentic repentance and faith, if it's truly real, will be expressed in allegiance to this king. In other words, if you want to avoid taking an iron scepter to the teeth and getting your head shattered like glass, you have but one alternative. You must kiss the sun. Look at verse 12. The final summons, kiss the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be quickly kindled how blessed are those who take refuge in him kiss the son he says sadly some versions smooth that out to be do homage to the sun, but but the word here is kiss and there's different kinds of kisses in the Bible. There's the kiss of peace. There's the holy kiss. There are the kisses in the book of Song of Songs. And then there's, of course, the Judas kiss. And there's this right here. And what is this kiss but an affectionate display of unrestrained allegiance? This kiss is a submission with affection. It's a loyalty to his royalty with longing and delight. An allegiance that yields in glad-hearted surrender and joyful acquiescence to the king. Refusal to do this, however, will incur only the wrath of the king. The penalties are enormous. Look what he says. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath will soon be quickly kindled. The terms are clear, aren't they? This king will be your highest treasure or he will be your enemy. He will be your highest allegiance or he will be your judge. You give up all or you lose everything. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to go down that way. There is another way to go. For a limited time only, there is a blessed and beautiful alternative. A window, an opportunity, a window of soteriological opportunity to trust and take refuge in the Son. Look at the last phrase. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. And there it is. There is a safe place from the wrath of the Son, and it is the Son Himself. He is the only hiding place from His own wrath. You try to run away from Him and hide, there will be no place to hide. He will hunt you down and find you, but there is a safe place from the wrath of the Son, and it is Himself the hiding place of His own wrath. And so if you haven't done so, if you haven't done so, you need to come to the King of Kings. You need to take refuge in the wings of the King of Kings, hide in the shadow of the King of Kings who not only died for sinners in their place, but when He returns, He will make all things be the way they ought. To be. Let's pray. O oh, great King, we marvel, we tremble a little bit, we kind of get this, we want more of this, we want this to be real for us, we want this to shape us in the secret moments of our, our lives, and so, so I ask you that you would do that for us. And we understand that that true trembling in the soul can only happen as we read and ponder and contemplate and meditate and be saturated with the text of Holy Scripture. So we ask you to give us the strength to do that, that our hearts might be changed, that we might be renewed in our minds, that we might think biblical thoughts, that your thoughts would be our thoughts, and that we would live our lives in joyful trembling of you as the greatest treasure of our souls. Thank you, O Son, O Messiah, O Great King, for this time together. Work in our lives, we ask. Amen.